Asia actually looks all right now. A scenario that would fit is an Asia-led economic recovery. If the new hypothesis is correct, then certain other things should happen in the future. In contrast to the trend follower, I am anticipating future trends rather than waiting for the trends to develop and then jumping on. I may end up being in many of the same trades as a trend follower, but the timing is going to be very different. Do you trade equity indexes or equities? Equity indexes and baskets, yes, but not that much. Why aren't you a fan of trading equities? Interest rate markets or FX are usually better ways for me to express trades. The world is full of people who trade equities. I don't think another hedge fund that trades equities is particularly exciting. Also, a problem I have with equities is that equity stories make no sense to me. Equity people often make no sense to me. The reasons I think trades have worked are usually nothing like the reasons why equity people think they worked. In my entire life, I personally only done one single stock trade. Out of curiosity, because it was the only one, what was it? I bought Berkshire in 1999. And that was because? The price had halved because Buffett refused to be involved in the dot-com bubble. I thought that was the stupidest reason I'd ever heard for a stock price to have. NASDAQ is going through the roof. Warren Buffett, who is clearly one of the all-time legends of investing, is saying, I don't understand this dot-com stuff. I'm staying away from it and his stock price gets hammered because he's seen as a dinosaur that isn't part of the new paradigm. I thought that was idiotic. Buffett being penalized for underperforming versus managers riding the long side of the dot-com bubble is a perfect illustration of a common investor mistake, failing to realize that often the managers with the highest returns achieve those results because they're taking the most risk, not because they have the greatest skill. How long did you hold the position? until I started my hedge fund. I believed in myself more than I believed in Warren Buffett. Let's go back to when you first started out at Citigroup the week the UK was forced out of the ERM. When did you begin trading? My first trade ever was the year after. They gave new traders small limits they were allowed to trade. I remember doing a really good fundamental analysis about the UK economy and deciding that the rate hikes the market was pricing in were not going to happen. I proved to be perfectly correct. Three months later, they still hadn't hiked rates, and short sterling, UK short-term interest rates, rallied 100 basis points from where I had the trade idea. Well, I lost money. How did you lose money when your forecast was exactly correct? It's pretty straightforward. The implementation didn't match the hypothesis. The hypothesis was clearly a one-to-three-month horizon. So I should have traded a one-to-three-month horizon. What did I do? I was constantly getting in and out because I was scared of losing money. The rational trade hypothesis was beautiful. The implementation was entirely emotional and stupid. I realized that you have to embrace uncertainty and risk. Over a three-month period, it is the trend that is important. I guess the lesson is that the market is not going to let you make any money unless you're willing to take risk. You have to embrace the logical consequences of your ideas, and that means you have to have a stop-loss that is wide enough. So even though you were on the right side of the trend for three months, you lost money because you kept on getting stopped out. 
Yes, because I had read trading books. It took me a while to realize that those trading books are counterproductive because the rules are generic and not specific. Most trading book rules are designed for people who have the error of excess optimism and are in emotional denial of their losses. Trading book rules are designed to protect traders who are gamblers. People who like trading because they like gambling are always going to be terrible at it. For these people, the trading books could be greatly shortened to the message, Don't trade. You are really bad at this, so just don't do it. I don't actually have a gambler's mentality. I make different emotional mistakes, so imposing trading book rules on me is a terrible misfit. That is why your books are important. All the traders you write about have a method that is personal and fits them. You learn from everyone around you, but you have to do what makes sense for you, even if it's the opposite of what makes sense for other people. So you don't use stops? No, I do. I just set them wide enough. In those early days, I wasn't setting stops at levels that made sense based on the underlying hypothesis for the trade. I was setting stops based on my pain threshold, and the market doesn't care about your pain. I learned from that mistake. When I get out of a trade now, it is because I was wrong. I'm thinking, hmm, that shouldn't have happened. Prices are inconsistent with my hypothesis. I'm wrong. I need to get out and rethink the situation. In my first trade, prices were never inconsistent with my hypothesis. What are some other mistakes you have learned from? I don't have any great example of a mistake that costs me a material amount of money because I have a very tight risk discipline on the downside. Stopping yourself from losing money is quite easy. I've never really had that problem. I'd say that, that most of my big errors have been opportunity errors. I sometimes believe in something so strongly that it acts as a constraint on doing trades that could be very profitable. For example, in late 2010, my underlying belief that the European sovereign debt crisis was really a big problem made it hard for me to participate in a sentiment in a liquidity-driven bull market. I failed to take part in the biggest macro theme of the year. From September on, equities were up a lot and commodities were up a lot. It was a massive opportunity that I should have been in, and I wasn't. I missed the key point that no one else cared, and as long as no one cares, there is no crisis. It's the same reason I didn't make any money in the NASDAQ bubble. I thought, I can't buy pets.com. But actually, you can't make money in the NASDAQ bubble by definition. You can. How do you go long a bubble and protect yourself? When it starts to go down, you sell it. It turned out that the NASDAQ move up was relatively smooth, but a bubble could be very volatile. That's when you don't get involved. Actually, what I've learned is that bubbles last a long time and that there's money to be made out of bubbles. Without the benefit of hindsight, how could you play a NASDAQ-type move now? The main thing about bubbles is that you need to be early. The worst thing you can do in a bubble is to be stubborn and then late to convert. I have avoided late conversions. But what I am trying to learn is to be an earlier convert to things that make no sense. I have an aversion to things that make no sense, and I should get over that. I guess that sometimes the reason for a bull market is psychological rather than fundamental, and participating in the euphoria of a psychological move is itself the rationale for the trade. Yes, and I don't mind that. What I have difficulty with is when the fundamentals are in conflict with the euphoria. 
I have tended to be premature in worrying about the conflicting fundamentals. I think in terms of the next 10 or 20 years, I'd like to do a better job of monetizing other people's irrational euphoria. So, one of your shortcomings has been in letting your rational assessment of a situation keep you from participating in a psychologically driven trade. Yes, failing to participate in markets when the fundamentals are less important than the psychology. But how do you recognize that type of situation? Well, that's the key question, isn't it? <laughs> there are various gauges. A simple one is just price action. If it trades like a bull market, it's a bull market. Another indication is how passionately people defend things that make no sense. For example, some people believe that Barack Obama is not a U.S. citizen. The point is that beliefs that are completely invulnerable to evidence and passionately defended can be quite durable. It has nothing to do with the fundamental logic. That's a political example. But what would be a tradable example? Gold is special, magical, and great. It's not. But if people believe it, they buy it. And if they buy it, it goes up. That's why there's a bull market. You can't go to a meeting without someone saying, what do you think about gold? What does that tell you? It tells you that you should be long gold. So, going back to the NASDAQ bubble, another example would be people saying that it doesn't matter if a company is losing money, all that matters is how many clicks they are getting on their website. Yes, exactly. The utter irrationality of the fundamental justification doesn't matter. And if you try and point that out to somebody, they will just give you an even more ridiculous justification why the market should go up. You cannot shake them at all from their belief. Those are the characteristics of bubble markets. The reason why they have legs is because it takes such enormous evidence to make people change their minds. How do you know when it does change? You know the dot-com bubble is over when it starts going down. It will be the same thing with gold. Right now, as we talk, gold is somewhere just north of $1,500 and not far from its all-time high. So what you are saying is that the gold top could be now. It could be at $2,000. It could be at $2,500. It could be any number. And that's okay. The thing about gold is that if you told me gold has a price of $100, that's fine. If you told me it's $10,000, that's fine as well. It can be any price. Gold is worth exactly what people think it's worth. I'm sure you know why that is true for gold. What do you think? This is one of those questions that can be answered unambiguously. Gold is the only commodity where the amount of supply is literally about 100 times as much as the amount physically used in any year. That is not true of any other commodity, such as wheat or copper where total supply and annual consumption are much closer in balance, and true shortages can develop. There's never any shortage of gold, so gold's value is entirely dependent upon psychology or those fundamentals that drive psychology. Many years ago, when I was a commodity research director, I would totally ignore gold production and consumption in analyzing the market. I would base any price expectation entirely on such factors as inflation, and the value of the dollar because those are the factors that drive psychology. I always found it ridiculous when other analysts would write lengthy reports on gold analyzing such things as annual production prospects and jewelry usage. Annual production and consumption of gold are always a tiny fraction of supply, maybe around 1%, so who cares how much they change? It has nothing to do with the price. Yes, that is exactly right. 
It's one thing to say that a market in a bubble can go to any price, but quite another to determine when the bubble is over. You said just before you know it's over when the price starts going down. But how do you differentiate between a correction and a reversal in the market? That is a good question and quite a difficult one. There are several possible methods. The simplest method is to pretend you are a CTA. A CTA will have a systematic way of defining when a trend is changed. Another way you can tell is if the market displays price action that is characteristic of the late stages of a bubble, such as an exponential price rise, similar to what we recently saw in silver in May 2011. Did you trade that market? Yes, through options. The problem with markets like silver is that when they break, they can collapse rapidly, and there is a gap risk. I think the natural way to trade a market that is in a bubble is from the long side, not the short side. You want to be long the exponential up move without taking on the gap risk of a collapse. Therefore, options provide a good way of doing this type of trade. Since the silver price move exhibited characteristics of a bubble, why wouldn't you also consider trading the market from the short side? Because tops are messy, and the reversals in bear markets are horrendous. It's very rare to find comfortable shorts in bear markets. If you consider NASDAQ as an example, it was quite an easy trade from the long side for a long time. It went from 1500 in late 1998 to over 5000 in early 2000 with hardly any meaningful corrections. From the short side, it was a really rough trade. After breaking down in very whippy fashion to under 3100 in June 2000, the market then rallied back to near 4300 in the next two months. This was a 40% rebound in a market that was clearly dead. Post-bubble dead cat bounces can be vicious. Sounds more like a dead tiger bounce. I don't think you will find many people that have made the majority of their money shorting bubbles. Does that imply that you didn't trade the NASDAQ from the short side, even after you were sure the bull market was dead? No, I didn't, because the repercussions of the top were a lot easier to play than being short the NASDAQ itself. You had a broad bubble in assets. The U.S. economy had been built up by a massive mispricing of assets. Once the NASDAQ burst and everything unraveled, it was clear the economy would slow down. The economic downturn led to a big move in fixed income that provided a much calmer way to play that idea than a direct trade in equities. So rather than consider the short side of the NASDAQ, you traded the long side of the bonds. That's right. Are there any current examples of markets that are in euphoria-driven states that are running counter to fundamentals? I wouldn't say they are counter to the fundamentals, but rather that they are overpricing one particular outcome. For example, European sovereign debt may be fairly priced if you have a strong conviction that the outcome will be a federated Europe in which the German taxpayer will pick up the bills. If you anticipate a less optimistic scenario, then current prices may not make much sense. A few weeks ago, Spanish debt was trading at only 150 basis points over Germany. So the market is pricing in a solution. Yes, it's pricing a solution that may not happen. 150 basis points is not zero, but it is a lot closer to zero than the current 1,000-plus basis point premium on Greek debt. The relatively small premium for Spanish debt reflects a high degree of confidence in a particular outcome. I am not suggesting the more negative outcome is more likely but simply that there is more uncertainty than implied by the current moderate premium. In a situation like this where there is a binary outcome that is highly uncertain, 
but the probabilities are different from what the market seems to be pricing. Do you participate in the market? That is the main part of what I do. I look for deviations between the fundamental probability distribution I perceive and the probability distribution priced in by the market. Being short Spanish debt is a trade where the downside is limited to the annual carry, but the upside can be very substantial. It seems that an inherent characteristic of most of your trades is that they have an asymmetric quality. The maximum loss is limited, but the profit potential is open-ended. Yes, having a positive skew is very important. It's not about being right all the time. Most good macro traders will be right only about half the time or even less. Is trading a skill that can be taught? It can't be taught, but it can be learned. What do you mean by that? My natural trade time horizon is one to three months, but that doesn't mean it would be right for you. Since I don't know you, I can't tell you what your trading style should be. But if you are willing to put in the effort, you can learn what the style should be. If I try to teach you what I do, you will fail because you are not me. If you hang around me, you will observe what I do, and you may pick up some good habits. But there are a lot of things that you will want to do differently. A good friend of mine, who sat next to me for several years, is now managing lots of money at another hedge fund and doing very well. But he is not the same as me. What he learned was to not become me. He became something else. He became him. Are there traits that determine who will be a successful trader? Perseverance and the emotional resilience to keep coming back are critical, because as a trader you get beaten up horribly. Frankly, if you don't love it, there are much better things to do with your life. You can't trade because you think it is a way to make a lot of money. That won't cut it. No one who trades for the money is going to be any good. If successful traders were only motivated by the money, they would just stop after five years and enjoy the material things. They don't. They continue well beyond any financial need. They can be somewhat obsessive. Trading is simply what they do. Jack Nicklaus has plenty of money. Why did he keep playing competitive golf well into his 60s? Probably because he really liked playing golf. He probably had a compulsive need to do it. Are there trading rules you adhere to? I use risk guidelines, but I don't believe in rules in that way. Traders who are successful over the long run adapt. If they do use rules, and you meet them ten years later, they will have broken those rules. Why? Because the world changed. Rules are only applicable to a market at a specific time. Traders who fail may have great rules that work, but then stop working. They stick to the rules because the rules used to work, and they are quite annoyed that they are losing even though they are still doing what they used to do. They don't realize that the world has moved on without them. Besides failure to adapt, what other mistakes get traders into trouble? People run large amounts of money with relatively unsophisticated risk management. Through 2008, I spoke to managers who said they had halved their risk. I would say, half, that's quite a lot. Then they would continue and say, yes, my leverage was four, and it is now two. I would answer, do you realize volatility has gone up five times? In terms of volatility-adjusted leverage, their risk exposure had actually gone up. I notice that you use VAR as a risk measurement. Aren't you concerned that it can sometimes be very misleading regarding portfolio risk? Value at risk, VAR, can be defined as the loss threshold that will not be exceeded within a specified time interval at some high confidence level, typically 95% or 
the VAR can be stated in either dollar or percentage terms. For example, a 3.2% daily VAR at the 99% confidence level would imply that the daily loss is expected to exceed 3.2% on only 1 out of 100 days. To convert a VAR from daily to monthly, we multiply it by the square root of 22, the approximate number of trading days in a month. Therefore, the 3.2% daily VAR would also imply that the monthly loss is expected to exceed 15.0%, 3.2% times 4.69, only once out of every 100 months. The convenient thing about VAR is that it provides a worst-case loss estimate for a portfolio of mixed investments and adapts to the specific holdings as the portfolio composition changes. There are several ways of calculating VAR, but they all depend on the volatility and correlations of the portfolio holdings during a past look-back period, and therein lies the rub. The VAR provides a worst-case loss estimate assuming future volatility and correlation levels look like the past. The main reason the VAR gets a bad name is because people don't understand it. VAR does exactly what it says on the tin, which is, it tells you how volatile your current portfolio was in the past. That is all. VAR is entirely backward-looking. You have to recognize that the future will be different. If I think the world in the future will be highly volatile, then I will run a current VAR that is relatively low because I think the future will be more volatile than the past. VAR gets a bad name because people manage risk by it, and the shortcoming is that volatilities and correlations can change very radically on an existing portfolio via v what they were in the past. But that is patently obvious. If it is so obvious, how come so many people manage risk that way? VAR doesn't blow up portfolios. People do. Do you ever have a problem getting out of a losing trade? I start by deciding where the market would have to go for me to be wrong. That's where I place my stop. That means that it's not difficult for me to get out of a position if the market goes there. The most common money management error I see is people setting stop losses that are really pain thresholds. When the market reaches their stop, they don't really want to get out because they still think they are right. They will get out because their stop is hit and they are disciplined. But very soon afterwards, they will want to get back in because they don't think they were wrong. That's how day traders in NASDAQ in 2000 and 2001 lost a ton of money. They were disciplined, so they would close out their positions by the end of the day. But they kept on repeating the same trading mistake. They failed to recognize that they were completely wrong because we were in a bear market. So the disciplined use of stops that are set too close could lead to the proverbial death by 1,000 cuts. Yes, and that's why I think trading books that provide specific rules can be quite dangerous. They can lead to the illusion that you are in control and being disciplined, and it is true that you are restricting yourself from a single catastrophic loss, but it doesn't prevent repeated losses on the same idea. Sometimes a close stop may be appropriate. If it is a short-term technical idea and you don't like the trade anymore if the market breaks a level, then getting out on a close stop is fine. If, however, it is a fundamental idea that needs a long time to play out, then a short-term stop makes absolutely no sense. If your entry and exit strategy is out of sync with the reason you like the trade, then you don't have an internally consistent money management plan, which means it will fail. 
So you need to decide where you are wrong before you determine the stop point. First, you should decide where you are wrong. That determines where the stop level should be. Then you work out how much you are willing to lose on the idea. Last, you divide the amount you're willing to lose by the per contract loss to the stop point, and that determines your position size. The most common error I see is that people do it backwards. They start with position size. Then they know their pain threshold, and that determines where they place their stop. The popular perception of the successful global macro manager is a trader who has an ability to forecast major trends in world markets, FX, interest rates, equities, commodities, through skillful analysis and insight. O'Shea emphasizes that his edge is not forecasting what will happen, but rather recognizing what has happened. O'Shea believes that it is very difficult to pick a major turning point, such as where a market bubble will top, and that trying to do so is a losing strategy. Instead, he waits until events occur that confirm a trading hypothesis. For example, he thought that excessive risk-taking during 2005 to 2007 had inflated various markets beyond reasonable levels and left the financial markets vulnerable to a major sell-off. Nevertheless, insofar as he sees his role as trading in response to the prevailing market facts rather than forecasting turning points, he actually had bullish positions on during this time. He did not switch to a bearish posture until an event occurred that he saw as a confirmation that the markets were in the process of rolling over, the drying up of liquidity in the money markets in August 2007. He didn't need to forecast anything, but he did need to recognize the significance of an event that many ignored. Indeed, the S&P 500 went on to make new highs in the next two months. O'Shea believes that how a trade is implemented is more important than the trade idea itself. He seeks to implement a trade in the way that provides the best return to risk and limits losses in the event the trade is wrong. For example, after liquidity dried up in the money markets in August 2007, O'Shea expected rates to be cut. Instead of expressing this trade idea only through long short-term interest rate instrument positions, O'Shea also implemented the trade as a yield curve spread, long short-term rate instruments slash short long-term rate instruments. His reasoning was that the yield curve at the time was relatively flat, implying that a rate decline would most likely be concentrated on the short-term end of the yield curve. If, however, rates went up, the flat yield curve implied that long-term rates should go up at least as much as short-term rates and probably more. The yield curve spread provided most of the profit potential with only a fraction of the risk. In essence, it provided a much better return-to-risk ratio than a straight long position in short-term rates alone. The Nasdaq peak provided another example of how O'Shea seeks the best return-to-risk strategy to implement a trade idea. After the break from the March 2000 peak, O'Shea felt fairly certain that the bubble had burst, yet he did not consider short positions in Nasdaq, even though he believed that the market had formed a major bubble top, because he recognized, correctly as it turned out, that trading the short side was treacherous. Even though the market ultimately went sharply lower in the summer of 2000, the index witnessed an approximate 40% rebound. A move of this magnitude would very likely have resulted in a short position being stopped out. O'Shea reasoned that a NASDAQ top implied that most assets would recede from inflated levels, which would lead to an economic slowdown and lower interest rates. A long bond position provided a much easier and more comfortable way to trade the same idea.
Bonds subsequently witnessed a fairly smooth uptrend, in contrast to the highly erratic downtrend in NASDAQ. Flexibility is an essential quality to successful trading. It is important not to get attached to an idea and to always be willing to get out of a trade if the price action is inconsistent with the trade hypothesis. O'Shea cites George Soros as a master of flexibility who has no attachment to his trades and shows the least regret about getting out of a position of anyone he has ever met. In April 2009, O'Shea was very pessimistic about the financial outlook, but the market behavior was telling him he was wrong. Since his bearish hypothesis was inconsistent with the market price action, he formulated an entirely different hypothesis that seemed to fit what was happening. That is, the markets were seeing the beginning of an Asia-led economic recovery. Staying with his original market expectation would have been disastrous, as both equity and commodity markets embarked on a multi-year rally. The flexibility to recognize that his premise was mistaken and to act on that awareness allowed O'Shea to experience a profitable year, even though his original market outlook was completely wrong. O'Shea believes that the best way to trade a market bubble is to participate on the long side to profit from the excessive euphoria, not to try to pick a top which is nearly impossible, and approach vulnerable to large losses if one is early. The bubble cycle is easier to trade from the long side because the uptrend in a bubble is often relatively smooth, while the downtrend after the bubble bursts tends to be highly erratic. There are two components necessary to successfully trade the long side of a bubble. First, it is important to initiate a trade early in the bubble phase. Second, since bubbles are prone to abrupt, sharp, downside reversals, it is critical that the long-biased position is structured so that the worst-case loss is limited. For this reason, O'Shea would never be outright long in a bubble market, but instead would express a bullish posture through a position such as a long call, a trade in which the maximum risk is defined by the premium paid for the option. Low-volatility bubble markets are especially well-attuned to being traded via long calls. Although macro trades are typically based on the fundamental market view, there does not always have to be a reason for the trade. Sometimes the market price action itself can reveal that something important is going on, even if the fundamental reason is not apparent. O'Shea experienced the situation in the course of LTCM's demise, an event that strongly impacted most markets. Although O'Shea did not know the reason for the market action at the time, he reasoned that the magnitude of the move implied that there was an important fundamental development, and he adjusted his positions accordingly. He quotes George Soros on this concept, invest first, investigate later. Many of the traders I have interviewed have emphasized the importance of a disciplined money management plan. O'Shea provides an insightful, more nuanced view. O'Shea explains that money management discipline could even be counterproductive if it is inconsistent with the underlying trade analysis. Many traders have the discipline to set stops and stick with them, but made the critical mistake of determining the stop points as pain thresholds rather than price levels that disprove their original trade premise. When they get stopped out, they still believe the original trade idea was correct. As a result, there will be a strong temptation to get back into the trade, leading to multiple losses on the same idea. The money management discipline may prevent a single large loss, but if the stop point is inconsistent with the trade analysis, it may not prevent a cumulative loss that is even larger. O'Shea's advice is first decide where you are wrong, and then set the stop. If the stop implies a larger loss than you are comfortable taking on a single trade, then size the position correspondingly smaller, 
Using this approach, if the market reaches the stop point, it will be consistent with your own beliefs that the original trade premise was wrong. One common theme that seems to underlie almost all the trades that O'Shea discussed in this chapter is that they are structured to be right-skewed. That is, the maximum loss is limited, but the upside is open-ended. Long options, long CDS protection, and long the TED spread are all examples of trades in which the maximum loss is constrained. Chapter 2 Ray Dalio, The Man Who Loves Mistakes Ray Dalio is the founder, CIO, former CEO, and current mentor, the title he assumed in July 2011, of Bridgewater, the world's largest hedge fund. As of December 2011, Bridgewater had $120 billion in assets under management and more than 1,400 employees. Bridgewater is unique in many ways beyond its size. It has made more money for its investors than any other hedge fund in history, an estimated $50 billion over the past 20 years. Bridgewater's flagship fund has a near-zero correlation to traditional markets. Bridgewater's flagship fund also has a very low correlation to other hedge funds. The flagship fund uses the relatively rare combination of a fundamentally-based systematic approach. Most hedge funds that are fundamentally based use a discretionary approach, and most hedge funds that use systematic approaches base them on technical input. Bridgewater fosters an unusual corporate culture that encourages criticism among employees regardless of rank. Virtually all of Bridgewater's business is institutional, 95% institutional, 5% fund of funds. Bridgewater is among a small minority of funds with a 20-year track record. Bridgewater was the first hedge fund to create separate alpha and beta funds that could be combined in any mix desired by the client. The track record for Bridgewater's flagship strategy encompasses both managed accounts and funds, with each trading at multiple target volatility levels and multiple currencies. The 18% volatility strategy has achieved an average annual compounded net return of 14.8%, 22.3% gross, over a near 20-year period with an annualized standard deviation of 14.6%, 16.0% on gross return data. The most impressive aspect of Bridgewater's performance has been the firm's ability to generate strong returns on huge assets under management. It is one thing for a hedge fund strategy to achieve strong return-slash-risk performance on $50 million, or $500 million, or even $5 billion, but to do so on $50 billion is truly astounding. $50 billion is the approximate assets under management Bridgewater had in its pure alpha strategy during 2010 when it recorded its highest annual return ever. Ray Dalio is a big-picture thinker. Question. What one word might best describe Dalio's view of an economic model based on a thorough analysis of the entire 67-year post-World War II U.S. economy? Answer. Myopic. Dalio describes his approach as timeless and universal. He believes an economic model should encompass multiple times and countries. Bridgewater employs a fundamentally based computer model that incorporates trading rules gleaned from both Dalio's four decades of market observations, as well as Bridgewater's analysis of markets going back hundreds of years and spanning a broad range of developed and emerging economies. Dalio named his flagship fund Pure Alpha, 
to differentiate it from the majority of hedge funds he considers primarily beta vehicles. Dalio has been critical of hedge funds that derive most of their return from beta, but charge the higher fees associated with hedge funds on their entire return, even though the beta-derived portion can be duplicated by passive long investments. Beta measures how much an investment varies given changes in a benchmark market, e.g. S&P 500. Essentially, beta-based returns are returns that are earned by assuming various risks, most commonly market direction risk. In contrast, alpha refers to skill-based returns, which by definition are not correlated to any market or risk factor. The name of Bridgewater's flagship fund, Pure Alpha, leaves little doubt as to the type of return it seeks to capture. True to its name, Pure Alpha has had near zero correlation to equities and fixed income and very low correlation, 0.10, to hedge funds. Bridgewater also has a beta-based strategy, All Weather, which has an objective of delivering beta returns in a portfolio mix that is balanced, so it will do well in different market environments. In 2009, Bridgewater launched All Weather 2, which is a constrained version of All Weather that limits safe environment investments when the firm's depression gauge indicator is activated. The idea that the same fundamentals would have different implications under different circumstances and environments is an essential component of Dalio's analytical thinking. As a result, categorization is an important tool for both conceptualizing problems and finding solutions. One example of category-based thinking is what I would call quadrant conceptualization. Two key factors and two states provide four possible conditions. Bridgewater's beta fund, the all-weather fund, provides an example of this type of thinking. The fund combines two factors, growth and inflation, and two states, increasing and decreasing, and comes up with four conditions. 1. Growth increasing. 2. Growth decreasing. 3. Inflation increasing. 4. Inflation decreasing. This four-part categorization reflects Dalio's view that changes in expected growth and expected inflation are the dominant reasons that some asset classes do well when others do poorly. The fund's strategy is to balance the portfolio with investments that do well in each of the above four environments. In contrast, most conventional portfolios substantially overweight assets that do well in the first category, i.e., growth-increasing environment, leading to unbalanced portfolios that can do poorly in other types of environments. Another example of quadrant conceptualization is the way that Dalio categorizes the economic outlook for different countries. Here he divides the world into two types of countries, creditors and debtors, and he defines two key distinguishing characteristics for each, countries that can exercise independent monetary policy and those that can't. So there are four classifications of countries. 1. Debtor countries with independent monetary policy, e.g. U.S., U.K. 2. Debtor countries without independent monetary policy, e.g. Greece, Portugal. 3. Creditor countries with independent monetary policy, e.g. Brazil. 4. Creditor countries without independent monetary policy, e.g. China because it pegs its currency to the dollar, which impedes its ability to raise interest rates. Dalio loves mistakes because he believes that mistakes provide learning experiences that are the catalyst for improvement. The concept that mistakes are the path to progress is one of the pillars of Dalio's life philosophy and the Bridgewater culture. 
Dalio is almost reverential in his comments about mistakes. I learned that there is an incredible beauty to mistakes because embedded in each mistake is a puzzle and a gem that I could get if I solved it, i.e. a principle that I could use to reduce my mistakes in the future. I learned that each mistake was probably a reflection of something that I was, or others were, doing wrong. So if I could figure out what that was, I could learn how to be more effective. While most others seem to believe that mistakes are bad things, I believe mistakes are good things because I believe that most learning comes via making mistakes and reflecting on them. Dalio has set down his life philosophy and management concepts in Principles, a 111-page document that defines the Bridgewater culture and is required reading for employees. Principles is divided into two sections, the first, which Dalio calls My Most Fundamental Principles, and the second, a resulting compendium of 277 management rules. Not surprisingly, many of the management rules focus on mistakes, a sampling. Recognize that mistakes are good if they result in learning. Create a culture in which it is okay to fail, but unacceptable not to identify, analyze, and learn from mistakes. We must bring mistakes into the open and analyze them objectively. So managers need to foster a culture that makes this normal and penalizes suppressing or covering up mistakes, highlighting them, diagnosing them, thinking about what should be done differently in the future, and then adding that knowledge to the procedures manual are all essential to our improvement. Recognize that you will certainly make mistakes and have weaknesses. So will those around you and those who work for you. What matters is how you deal with them. If you treat mistakes as learning opportunities that can yield rapid improvement if handled well, you will be excited by them. If you don't mind being wrong on the way to being right, you will learn a lot. If improvement through mistakes is one of the two core concepts and principles, radical transparency is the other. Employees are encouraged to be extremely transparent, not to tolerate dishonesty, criticize each other without reservation, and not let loyalty stand in the way of truth and openness. Managers are instructed not to talk about subordinates unless they are in the room. Virtually all meetings at Bridgewater are taped and made available to employees. Dalio leaves little doubt about his views on the topic of openness and honesty. For example, management rule number 11 in principles states, Never say anything about a person you wouldn't say to him directly. If you do, you're a slimy weasel. Many of the rules and principles actually are well aligned with the key characteristics required for trading success. As one example, the following admonition from principles about the importance of accepting responsibility would fit equally well in a manual for successful trading. People who blame bad outcomes on anyone or anything other than themselves are behaving in a way that is at variance with reality and subversive to their progress. I interviewed Dalio at his Bridgewater office, which is cantilevered over the Sagatuck River, with views of the surrounding woods, providing a bucolic work setting. Dalio tends to think in terms of interconnections rather than linearly, which can lead to rambling answers, as he readily acknowledges. I see things in complex ways, and I have a problem communicating my way of seeing to others. As the allotted time for the interview approached its end, Dalio abruptly pronounced, Okay, we're done. As the world's largest hedge fund, you have come quite far. I wonder what your goals were as a young man. I played around in the markets when I was a kid. 
I started when I was just twelve. It was like a game, and I loved the game. The fact that I could make money playing the game was good, too, but it wasn't what motivated me. I never had any specific goals like making or managing some level of money. It is amazing how many of the successful traders I have interviewed got started in the markets at a very young age. They're teens and sometimes even younger. That makes total sense to me, because the way people think is very much influenced by what they do early in their lives. Internalized learning is easiest when we are young, which is why learning to play a sport or to speak a language well is easier at an early age. The type of thinking that is necessary to succeed in the markets is entirely different from the type of thinking that is required to succeed in school. I'm sure that my being involved in the markets from an early age profoundly affected my way of thinking. How so? Most school education is a matter of following instructions. Remember this. Give it back. Did you get the right answer? It teaches you that mistakes are bad instead of teaching you the importance of learning from mistakes. It doesn't address how to deal with what you don't know. Anyone who has been involved in the markets knows that you can never be absolutely confident. There is never a trade that you know you are right on. If you approach trading that way, then you will always be looking at where you might be wrong. You don't have a false confidence. You value what you don't know. In order for me to form an opinion about anything involves a higher threshold than if I were involved in some profession other than trading. I'm so worried that I may be wrong that I work really hard at putting my ideas out in front of other people for them to shoot down and tell me where I may be wrong. That process helps me be right. You have to be both assertive and open-minded at the same time. The markets teach you that you have to be an independent thinker. And any time you are an independent thinker, there is a reasonable chance you are going to be wrong. How did you get involved in the stock market as a child? When I was a kid in the 1960s, just about everyone was talking about the stock market, more so than at any other time, even including during the tech bubble. I remember getting a haircut and discussing stocks with my barber. I earned some money caddying. I got paid $6 per bag and I carried two bags at a time. I used that money to open an account. My father introduced me to his retail broker. He barely invested in stocks, but at the time everyone had a retail broker. Do you remember your first trade? Yes, I bought Northeast Airlines, which flew between New York and Florida. How did you pick that stock? It was the only stock I had ever heard of that was also selling below $5 a share. So I could buy more shares. That was my whole analysis. It didn't make any sense, but I got lucky. The company was about to go bankrupt, but then it was acquired and I tripled my money. So I figured this was easy. I don't remember anything more about specific stocks I bought as a child. But what I do remember is that when I was about 18 years old, we had the first bear market in my experience and I learned to go short. Then in college, I got involved in trading commodities. What attracted you to commodities? I could trade them with low margin requirements. I figured that with low margin requirements, I could make more money. Any early experiences in the market stand out? In 1971, after graduating college and before going to business school, I had a job as a clerk on the New York Stock Exchange. On August 15th, Nixon took the U.S. off the gold standard, and the monetary system broke down. 
I remember the stock market then went up a lot, which is certainly not what I expected. What did you learn from that experience? I learned that currency deprecations and the printing of money are good for stocks. I also learned not to trust what policymakers say. I learned these lessons repeatedly over the years. Any other early experiences stand out where the market behaved very differently from what you expected? In 1982, we had worse economic conditions than we do right now. The unemployment rate was over 11%. It also seemed clear to me that Latin America was going to default on its debt. Since I knew that the money center banks had large amounts of their capital in Latin American debt, I assumed that a default would be terrible for the stock market. Then boom, in August, Mexico defaulted. The market responded with a big rally. In fact, that was the exact bottom of the stock market and the beginning of an 18-year bull market. That is certainly not what I would have expected to happen. That rally occurred because the Fed eased massively. I learned not to fight the Fed unless I had very good reasons to believe that their moves wouldn't work. The Fed and other central banks have tremendous power. In both the abandonment of the gold standard in 1971 and in the Mexico default in 1982, I learned that a crisis development that leads to central banks easing and coming to the rescue can swamp the impact of the crisis itself. Any other events stand out as learning experiences? Every day provides tactile learning experiences. You are asking me to describe moments. I don't see it as moments, but rather as a string of tactile experiences. It is not so much a matter of cerebral memories as it is visceral feelings. You can read about what happened in the market after Mexico defaulted, but it's not the same as being in the market and actually experiencing it. I particularly remember my surprises, especially the painful ones, because those are the experiences that provide learning lessons. I vividly remember being long pork bellies in my personal account in the early 1970s at a time when pork bellies were limit down every day. I didn't know when my losses would end, and I was worried that I would be financially ruined. In those days, we had the big commodity boards, which clicked whenever prices changed. So each morning, on the opening, I would see and hear the market click down 200 points, the daily limit, stay unchanged at that price, and know that I had lost that much more, with the amount of potential additional losses still undefined. It was a very tactile experience. What did you learn from that experience? It taught me the importance of risk controls because I never wanted to experience that pain again. It enhanced my fear of being wrong and taught me to make sure that no single bet, or even multiple bets, could cause me to lose more than an acceptable amount. In trading, you have to be defensive and aggressive at the same time. If you are not aggressive, you are not going to make money, and if you are not defensive, you are not going to keep money. I believe that anyone who has made money in trading has to experience horrendous pain at some point. Trading is like working with electricity. You can get an electric shock. With that pork belly trade and other trades, I felt the electric shock and the fear that comes with it. That led to my attitude, let me show you what I think and please knock the hell out of it. I learned about the math of investing. Dalio walks over to the board and draws a diagram where the horizontal axis represents the number of investments and the vertical axis the standard deviation. This is a chart that I teach people in the firm, which I call the holy grail of investing. He then draws a curve that slopes down from left to right. 
that is, the greater the number of assets, the lower the standard deviation. This chart shows how the volatility of the portfolio changes as you add assets. If you add assets that have a 0.60 correlation to the other assets, the risk will go down by about 15% as you add more assets. But that's about it, even if you add 1,000 assets. If you run a long-only equity portfolio, you can diversify to a 1,000 stocks and it will only reduce the risk by about 15%, since the average stock has about 0.60 correlation to another stock. If, however, you're combining assets that have an average of zero correlation, then by the time you diversify to only 15 assets, you can cut the volatility by 80%. Therefore, by holding uncorrelated assets, I can improve my return-slash-risk ratio by a factor of five through diversification. What about the problem of markets becoming highly correlated? As we sit here today, if you tell me that the S&P is down 2%, I can tell you the direction of virtually every other market. I don't think that's correct. Really, you don't think that's true? I think that's only true because of the way you are defining markets. For example, I can't tell you which way the Greek-Irish bond spread will move in response to the S&P being down. There are ways to structure your trades so that you can produce a whole bunch of uncorrelated bets. You have to start with your goal. My goal is that I want to trade more than 15 uncorrelated assets. You are just telling me your problem, and it's not an insurmountable problem. I strive for approximately 100 different return streams that are roughly uncorrelated to each other. There are cross-correlations that enter into it, so the number works out to be less than a 100, but it is well over 15. Correlation doesn't exist the way most people think it exists. What do you mean by that? People think a thing called correlation exists. That's wrong. What is really happening is that each market is behaving logically based on its own determinants, and as the nature of those determinants change, what we call correlation changes. For example, when economic growth expectations are volatile, stocks and bonds will be negatively correlated because if growth slows, it will cause both stock prices and interest rates to decline. However, in an environment where inflation expectations are volatile, stocks and bonds will be positively correlated because interest rates will go up with higher inflation, which is detrimental to both bonds and stocks. So both relationships are totally logical, even though they are exact opposites of each other. If you try to represent the stock-bond relationship with one correlation statistic, it denies the causality of the correlation. Correlation is just the word people use to take an average of how two prices have behaved together. When I'm setting up my trading bets, I'm not looking at correlation. I'm looking at whether the drivers are different. I'm choosing 15 or more assets to behave differently for logical reasons. I may talk about the return streams in the portfolio being uncorrelated, but be aware that I'm not using the term correlation the way most people do. I'm talking about the causation, not the measure. There has been some press recently about the culture at Bridgewater. How would you describe it? The Bridgewater culture seeks truth by encouraging independent thinking and innovation in an environment of radical transparency. We recognize that there must be thoughtful disagreement and non-ego-impaired explorations of mistakes and weaknesses to achieve our goals. It is a culture in which people hold each other to very high standards and are completely honest with each other while still being extremely considerate. 
It is a culture that values truth and transparency so much that we record almost all discussions so there can't be any spin. I think that one of the greatest problems that plagues mankind is that people are always saying, I think this and I think that, when there is a high probability they are wrong. After all, to the extent that there is strong disagreement about an issue, a lot of the people must be wrong. Yet most of them are totally confident they are right. How is that possible? Imagine how much better almost all decision-making would be if people who disagree were less confident and more open to trying to get at the truth through thoughtful discourse. Anyway, that's the approach that works well for us. When there is disagreement between you and Bridgewater employees whose opinion you respect, how is the difference of opinion resolved? We reach resolutions by questioning each other, which leads to better understanding. You say that. Why do you say that? What is the evidence? What do we need to look at? How can we resolve the difference? Who do we need to bring in to facilitate the conversation and help us move forward? And so on. That process produces discovery, and that's fantastic. If there is a disagreement about something that is to be built into our investment decision-making process, then the three chief investment officers would have to concur, Dalio and co-CIOs Bob Prince and Greg Jensen. By and large, we will almost always reach an agreement. If we didn't reach an agreement, we wouldn't make any change.